this podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. Patreon is a monthly subscription that you can cancel anytime. And PayPal is a one-time donation. Any amount is appreciated. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The handle, The Beirut Banyan. And you can find us on our YouTube channel with the same name. And you can start watching the episodes as they're released. Thank you for listening. And thank you for watching. I'm Rani Shatah. And this is The Beirut Banyan. First and foremost, thank you for willing to speak to me in the middle of this crazy moment we're witnessing. Um, and there are a number of reasons I want to talk to you. Uh, we were roommates, I think, 11 years ago. So, uh, yeah, we've both sort of grown up in the last 11 years. That's the first thing. The second thing is, I think, um, I don't know many people that have witnessed a similar experience, and we'll get into this later. A sort of a roller coaster from euphoria and energy and social cohesion to absolute silence in different settings. So I'd like to explore that. And also sort of something more immediate, which you were generous to, to sort of speak about, uh, your own experience with, with COVID-19 and something you shared online. And that might be the, uh, I mean, that's maybe a bit on the personal side, you can say as much as you'd like, but let's start from there. Can you just sort of share what it was like to experience this thing? And uh, especially at a time where it's not very easy to share that pain intimately with people, you're kind of forced to experience it largely to yourself. So can you just sort of share with us that kind of maybe the your reaction to COVID-19? Yeah, I mean... I had this sort of feeling that I was going to get it because New York, I mean, has now become the epicenter of the crisis. But even even then, back in, you know, mid-March when the schools were closing down and everything was starting to shut down, it felt like New York had kind of reacted too slowly. Mm. Um, and I just had a feeling I was going to be one of the first to get it. Um, and I'm actually really, really glad I did actually now because it's taken away a lot of that fear. I think most of the reason that we're so scared to leave the house um, is just that you don't know if you're going to be that person that has that has the awful corona that ends up, you know, being hospitalized and struggling to breathe. Um, yeah, I think, so what happened was, um, what seems to be quite common is for about two, three days, I thought I was getting a cold, like my sinuses got bad, um, no coughing or anything. And then just suddenly, like all of a sudden, I completely lost my sense of smell and taste. Hmm. Um and I think at that time, like the sort of second, third week of March, I hadn't really read much about this as a symptom. Um, so I just sort of thought that it might have been something to do with my sinuses. I just moved house. You know, there was a bit of dust around. I thought it was a reaction to that. Um, and I just remember buying this kind of punnet of strawberries and then eating one and just thinking, what the hell is this? It just tasted like water. It just tasted like absolutely bland, like nothing. And wow. then I just sort of thought maybe this was just a really cheap punnet of strawberries i bought it from the organic shop but you know um and then and then <laughs> and then later i had um, is this, is like this organic it's <laughs> yeah. nice yeah i come all the way to new york buy my organic fruit and vegetables and here it is but hey hey that speaks well of where you were coming from earlier that you know what real fruits <laughs> taste like <laughs> um so 
so I wrote the strawberry thing off and then I had, um, I drink my coffee black. Uh, so I had a black coffee and it just tasted like water. It tasted like hot water. Again, I just thought that's really weird. I mean, I've never, never completely lost my sense of smell and taste. Mm-hmm. And you don't realize how much it affects you until it actually happens. Because, I mean, there could have, you know, there could have been a gas explosion and I wouldn't have smelt it. There could have been a fire in the bedroom and I wouldn't have known because it just, it's complete. Wow. It's like 100%. Yeah. Um, I even did a kind of little, like, hot chili taste and put some flakes on my tongue and just nothing. And, like, Marmite could have been Nutella. Like, wow. there's a, I think there's a difference between feeling like you're stuffed up and struggling with your sinuses and just a complete loss of sense of smell and taste um so I had that for about um three four days until and I thought okay this is you know I can deal with this and I started googling it um and it turned out it was really really common among people under 40 as the kind of the first stage of the the symptoms Hmm. um so I think studies have shown in South Korea and Germany that up to 50, 60% of under 40s who tested positive actually had this symptom. Um, so then I became convinced that I had it and I was like, okay, well, great. Well, you know, what happens next? Um, and then it sort of, that was the Thursday. And then I think probably like the Sunday, Monday, I was just hit by like complete and utter exhaustion. Mm. Just, um, I mean, I've had this a few times in my life, but never this bad where you just, I just could not get out of bed. And the idea of just even making it to the fridge or the toilet was like an expedition. It felt like miles away. Um, wow. so I think I was probably sleeping like 18, 19, 20 hours a day. Um, waking oh, so up, is, like not even, this is absolute exhaustion. I mean, yeah, the, I mean, not just like, I feel a bit tired going for a walk. It was like, I can't actually open my eyes. Wow. Um, wow. So, I mean, not even to like, you know, normally the the only benefit of being sick is you can watch Netflix and, you know, read a book or something, but I just couldn't, I couldn't even do that. I just had to just rest. I just had to kind of do what my body was telling me. Um, so then that went on for like three, four days where I was just, um, so I took three, four days off work where I just, I mean, even if I wanted to, I just couldn't physically like keep my eyes open long enough to do anything. Did this, the sense of the, the tastelessness is what, did that fade was that sort of, did it come no, back? No, it stayed. Oh, it stayed. No, it, it stayed, stayed the whole time. Okay. I, I probably in total for two weeks didn't, um, it gradually came back like 5% every day after about 10 days. But for right. 10 days, it was basically complete, like got no joy from food. Wow. Couldn't smell anything. Yeah. Um, I've heard about it lasting as long as like four to six weeks for some people and, and like very, very, for very, very few people it can last for months. But yeah, for me, it was like two weeks of incomplete sense of smell um yeah then came the exhaustion and just body aches just like my body felt I felt like a 70 year old like my hips were hurting Mm -hmm. it was like you know if I walked for more than a few yards it just I just kind of felt like I was exhausted um and then yeah I was kind of just sort of bracing myself for fever and a cough and chest pains but just I mean that never came for me thank god um so yeah, I have no idea where I got it from. Um, you know, it's a strange, I, it's a strange combination of things that, and it's sort of like you can relate to all of them to a point, except the tastelessness. That's something I've yeah. never experienced. But you know, I mean that, and also that level of exhaustion is extreme. But it's interesting. There was no fever, so it's almost like, um, you, fortunately, there was no fever. But that's also for me that would be the one that's most worrisome. That that would require yeah. maybe hospitalization, and you didn't need to leave you didn't need to go to the hospital or anything like that no i just um completely quarantined like yeah, yeah. i did I, I don't think i left the house for about 10 days and then wow. when i start when, I did, when after 10 days I, I think i went for like 
a 10, 15 minute walk, didn't go into any shops for about two weeks. So I was, I was really worried. You yeah. flew flip from like being scared of everybody else to in that time, just like being really, really worried that you're going to give it to someone else. Yeah. Um, right. So I was just, you know, like putting stuff over my face and going for like one walk, one short walk a day and avoiding, avoiding people. Um, but yeah, that was it. And then, um, and then I went back to work and slowly the exhaustion kind of went, um, and the smell came back as, as I said, like after two weeks or so. Um, yeah. And, I, and my fever was never really above like 99, 99.2. So, okay. So, so, but it's still, I mean, it's, it was a bit hotter, but yeah. yeah. You know, I, uh, I think, I think you're the only person I know who's contracted COVID-19. I was thinking about it just now. I don't think, um, or at least has sort of been open about it and, and sharing uh, sharing it. So I, I'm I'm happy you're fine. And uh, <laughs> judging from the, I think is that whiskey behind you? <laughs> is that? <laughs> it is. It is. Okay. Uh, only Muslim alcohol. I mean, judging from you know, that. You know, no, go on. <laughs> no, no. Judging from that, it's not full. I guess you've kind of been uh, sort of dealing you know with what, it. Though, yeah. Yeah. It's funny you should say that. I had um, I haven't really drunk since the whole thing happened, so I just, I just don't really take any pleasure from like drinking it alone at home. Yeah. But um, <laughs> had I remember having a glass of wine when my taste when before I really realised that my taste was good and what was happening, and I had a glass of wine. I was really looking forward to it because I hadn't had I hadn't gone out to a bar in you know a month, and I just it just didn't taste like anything. It just it might as well have been water, and That's it was crazy. it was only really then. It's like, what the hell? Why does that? Because, you know, wine is supposed to taste like something. So when it doesn't, um, that's when you start to start Googling. I can only imagine that kind of odd flavor. There's no flavor. That odd sensation. It's like thick thick water. That's, wow, that's that's crazy. That's crazy. You know, what's crazier, Josie, is that, I mean, we we were speaking just before uh, that, I mean, you literally just arrived to New York. So this is not, I mean, you're not... This is like a welcome to New York, which couldn't be more dramatic. And you're seeing this city properly asleep. And I only arrived in, in, in late January. So for me, it was maybe just several weeks, a month or so, until this sort of started taking hold and people started uh, social distancing, things were shutting down. But both of us, only a few months ago, were in a part of the world that was so alive and so... Um, so together, and I think uh, we should we should get into this because it's it feels it's interesting. COVID nineteen has been what six weeks now or so. I mean, it's sort of become the 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 story, but it feels like it could have been five years ago that the October November protests took place in Beirut. And I, was, I saw you in the middle of them. That's I think true. I saw you on the way back. One, yeah. Oh, that's true. You're right. You know, yeah, uh, thank thank you for reminding me of that. That's true. That's true. I think I was recording an episode with a, a journalist. I think I had just sort of finished it and I was heading back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. But that okay. So we both saw the same thing. Can I just sort of get your your personal take on that experience of of intense coverage? And at least when it comes to work, of that social aspect, having lived in Beirut, and, and you know what that's like, that that extreme sort of uh, joy to this. I mean, how has it, I, I think it, it, it generates a lot of reflection, I think. And at least in my case, I've been thinking more and more about those protests, and I've sort of been able to look at them and think about them at a distance. 
Has there been any reflection on your side, at least on what you saw happening in that part of the world? And maybe, I don't know, a sense of optimism or pessimism? Is there anything you've taken from the last few weeks, having been sort of isolated and, and, and on your own, of what you saw just a few months ago? I think it's just a sort of weird sense that there's no baseline for normality anymore. Because if you if you li- if you live in a place that's going through something like a, a revolution, I think you can probably call what yeah. was happening in Lebanon until until COVID, um, and to see everyone so intensely together. And I think um, probably something you noticed as well that Lebanon had kind of never been more united. Um, yes, I mean you know there was a couple of clashes between Amal and Hezbollah and other protesters. But, I mean, for the large part, it had really gathered Lebanese people together um, and got people out into the street and you'd see families out at night and it was really like they were reclaiming the city. Um, And now it feels like, I mean, I think Lebanon maybe less so than other kind of authoritarian regimes across the Middle East, but we'll probably use something like this to to stop um, uh, protests from gathering pace again. And so... I mean, I hope, and we've seen the last couple of days, I think people going out and trying to kind of revive the protests in their yeah. car, you know, yeah. socially distancing. It really was the first time I think a lot of those people had left their house in like yeah. six weeks. I think the Lebanese people are intensely social um, and family orientated. So, I mean, I can't even imagine what it's been like for people to not be able to to leave and to, you know, and in a time when the country was struggling and they were hoping that they could make a change and, and hopefully this, won't have dampened that mm-hmm. um, moment, momentum, but it's hard to tell. I think at this point because this could go on and on. Yeah. So in a sense, it's all, it's still too soon to kind of look back on that moment and see whether or not it will yield tangible change down the road. It's still too early. I think I see a lot of um, Lebanese people who are very passionate about it, saying that they're going to you know take to the streets as soon as they can. I don't mm-hmm. think it was. I don't think it's. This is a. a something that's just going to go away yeah i think yeah. It, I, I i guess it you also see a lot of lebanese people that are almost like happy to be in lebanon rather than other countries because lebanon kind of conversely is dealing very well with it i mean we, we talked about this the other day in the house actually is that if you if you've lived through something like a civil war you have a, a kind of an a ten, a ten, antennae for like figuring out when something is serious and when you need to lock down and yeah. i think lots of um lots of lebanon locked down before they were even asked to before the government even ordered it and it was a sort of self-preservation i think um the war probably taught them that 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 communities particularly like america and the uk that are de- dealing worse with it now just cannot handle this idea of um you know any of their freedoms being impinged i likened it to uh, being able to survive short term and not turning to authority for protection. And that includes yeah. something like public services or even public utility. The fact that Lebanese always have electricity somehow, even when there's no power yeah. plant running, I think of it that way that, you know, they see something happening. They know that they can't trust the authorities to deal with it properly. So they deal with it on their own. In this case, it's one of the rare occasions, if not in my lifetime, it's the only occasion where Beirut, the sky is blue. There's no toxic sulfur over the... I mean, it's it's cl- relatively clean because no one is out. No one is driving. And the streets are empty. And I, I mean, for me, that is so strange to see Beirut deserted. New York, I happen to know it only from the last sort of few years that I've gotten to know New York more. It is also equally frightening to see Times Square deserted. But Beirut having sort of 
having come out of that protest era yeah. and then sort of deserted as well, it's, 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 it's shocking. It's shocking. Yeah. And maybe if I can sort of take it from there into your own career in journalism, you're among the few people I know that uh, have seen where I've lived and these places are some some of them are gone. I mean there was a there was a student pension that I helped manage long ago. I think we met in those years. This is maybe 15 years ago. Uh it's rare that I actually move this webcam. I'm just going to show you for a moment that uh our previous home is uh yeah. is in that painting. So We could almost we could almost touch that lighthouse from it, our from our room. Exactly. I think if we tried jumping, we would have we would have managed. <laughs> we could have. We thought, I, th- I think we thought briefly about getting a projector and projecting onto that white you white have, bit of the lighthouse. You have good memory, Joe. That's true, and I think it's probably the wisest decision that we didn't do that. <laughs> would have been one of those bad investments that just sort of didn't work. <laughs> But we've I remember it. I slept on a, a foam mattress on my floor because I could never be bothered to go and actually get some furniture. So I slept on a foam mattress and like, I don't know, like a towel, a towel for a blanket or something. But that speaks to your career because you started on a foam mattress uh, in, a, in a very charming apartment. Actually, for me, that's the favorite. Pl- that's my favorite home so far, that that apartment in particular. I owe it to you as well for having found that apartment and moving in. So, you know, that's a very belated thank you for letting me be your roommate for, for a period of time. Um, but, but you started, in a way, in those years, your career sort of began in, in, in the 2008, particularly 2009, and then 2010, we're living together. Uh, you know Beirut. I mean, you've, you've seen this, you've seen what Beirut has gone through. And I think you have a very... Uh, you have an intimate way of maybe exploring the Lebanese scene, and I think that's because you've just you've considered Beirut home for a number of years, and I think you cared about that city too. I only got to know your Syrian coverage later, and that's largely because I started following you while I was in your home in the UK. I spent four years in the UK. Um, I think for this episode, episode I'm just going to keep sort of <laughs> having little props. I mean, you're, <laughs> I don't know, Edinburgh is in my home. <laughs> I spent four years there. And that- I'm, I'm, I'm going to say, I'm to my absolute shame, I've never been to Scotland, which is, I know, awful, so no, bad. I don't know why I'm admitting to but, this. But this is actually normal. I think most people I know, most, most, not most people, sorry, most people that live in the UK or from the UK have not been to Edinburgh. <laughs> so, yeah, or London, it's like very yeah. rare because you just, just go to France or Spain or Italy, but yeah. Anyway, I never thought I'd be the one supporting Scotland to you, but <laughs> yeah. you should go to Edinburgh. Don't go I there should, for work; go there for pleasure. I should. But th- I I got to know your work while I was in the UK, and you were a still are a correspondent for the Telegraph, and uh, your coverage of Syria was equally equally. I think uh, I hope I use this word correctly. It was equally sensitive. Because uh, I noticed that you were largely focusing on the human story. And there are many reporters that covered Syria, and we can sort of explore this terrain a bit. I've had the luxury of speaking to several journalists who spent years covering Syria. This includes Anne Bernard, who we were talking about earlier. Uh, this includes um, Sam Derrer, who I interviewed uh, last year. He wrote a book recently on, 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 the, on, uh, on Syria. 
this includes other journalists. Their names are not coming to me right now, but uh, thank you. Thank you. You've got the book. I have to read it. It's right. It's right here. You know, that's that's <laughs> the best unintended plug. <laughs> it, that was not planned. Down. That was not planned. <laughs> and also... You know, it's the only book in my apartment right now. Oh, well, that's a different story then. <laughs> you could maybe get more. I mean, no, it's, it's cherished. It's yeah. the only book we have to read that we're going to read. Karim Shaheen, who we spoke about earlier as well. I mean, these are people that devoted years to covering Syria. And I think all have reached a, a similar conclusion. And if you don't mind, let's sort of explore this a bit. Uh, there's an article you wrote that I'm going to link up in the details box to this episode. It's a, a reflection on the years that you spent covering Syria. And I think if I can say this, it's a disillusionment with what happened. And at least it's a deep frustration with Despite all the efforts, the story and the care and sort of the the push to make sure people heard and, and knew what was happening in Syria, that it kind of just, it didn't deliver the way maybe you had hoped or maybe many of us had kind of uh, wished for. Um, I'm just going to ask you, it, can you maybe sort of take us into that journey and share as much as you'd like? about your early sort of stage covering Syria, maybe how your feelings evolved, and eventually what led to, to a sense, despair. And just your own career and how it took off and, and within the Syrian lens. Yeah. Um, I, think I, I think since I'd lived in Lebanon and got to know lots of Lebanese Syrian people, and this was before the war, as we were talking about 2010, um, and I left just before, like months before the Arab Spring started, which is obviously bad timing on my part for my career. But um, I was watching it from the beginning, from London and from San Francisco, and I felt incredibly frustrated. Um, and I think, as, as I said in my piece, I came back thinking that, you know, you can move the needle somehow, that always as a journalist, you go, you, I mean, no one wants to become a foreign correspondent to do a mediocre job and not leave any impression or impact or, mm. and you kind of hope that, I mean, not that you're an activist or, um, but, um, you're just, you're just trying to get people's word heard. And I think you, some people think, or you hope to think that if you get these people's voice out, that they will be listened to and that, that somehow there'll be some sort of consequence as, as I think, has happened in most wars or conflicts. There seems to have been some effects of, of having these wars covered, some mm. tangible mm. effect you can see in history. Um, and I think a lot of, I mean, this was kind of my first war, my first corresponding, proper corresponding experience. And so um, I guess I kind of went into it with a bit of naivety and you, and you read people like Marie Colvin and, and people who've been covering these things for much longer. And I think they were, they were also seemed to be shocked at how little, not that the world was paying attention, but that anything could be done. I mean, as I say in a piece again, like Marie Colvin went to Homs, um, she said, because she wanted to move the needle that she wanted something to be done and that she thought that humanity would that so, yeah, basically that the world would have to react if they saw something like that. And even by 2012, I think journalists were starting to realize that just wasn't happening. Oh, going back even um, back. Oh, so really early on that it had already sort of, there was that numbness towards the story. Not numbness, but I think, I think 
I mean, I, I wasn't covering Syria back in those early days, mm, but mm. reading you know, Lindsay Hilson's amazing book on Marie Coven's life and work, and she talks a, she talks a lot about that. That I think she, you know, she gave interview to CNN and she did various very high profile things to try and get attention on what was happening in Homs, and because of the geopolitics of it, even then, before Russia was properly involved, just nothing could be done. Yeah. Um, and to kind of see. I guess history just repeating itself over and over and over again. I mean, you'd cover an offensive like Aleppo and that was, I mean, that was the first offensive I've covered. So I missed the Homs and Hamar and, and that and kind of came in in 2016 when Aleppo was happening. And right. I was lucky, well, lucky enough to um, get a government visa to go to Damascus. And then um, that was my only trip to the government held area. And we went up to Aleppo with the Aleppo MP. So we were on the West Aleppo side, the government side, and um, we saw the Russians kind of coming in at that time. And it was incredibly interesting to see. And I covered that offensive hoping, not knowing, but hoping that that might be the last time. Because, it's, I mean, I think it's the most documented um, offensive in, like, modern history uh, to see. I mean, we were in WhatsApp groups with the journalists and the activists and the doctors and protesters and people on the ground and we we were literally getting things minute by minute updates of like ho doctors in hospital basements that have been bombed and like you're sitting there in your apartment in Beirut getting these live whatsapp updates and there's just there's just nothing you can do I mean there's nothing it's not like oh if I alert the UN that they might try and stop this from happening I mean there's nothing there's no recourse it's not but that, so that that phrase which sticks with me there's nothing you can do uh did, I mean is that sort of can you maybe explore the reasons of why that is, that seems to sort of pervade that it's a repeated feeling? Because I've heard that before. I mean, it's not that long ago. You any sort of war, any sort of uh, any tragedy that when there's that help hopelessness that sets in. Uh, I mean, I, the, the the examples have been used repeatedly, but Bosnia is not that long ago, and you know the Balkan War, and it was same kind of. There's not much we can do. Is that is that just part of the job that you have to admit at some point that your role is not to maybe help change the story, that it's just to be the ones that report on history? I mean, is it sort of, does it come with the role itself that it's almost like an acknowledgement from the beginning that really there's nothing think, you can do? Yeah, I mean, I guess quite quickly on you realize that you can't really affect anything and perhaps your job as a journalist is just to be, to hold someone anyone to account um and i think i think before we i guess we saw the un the united nations in that role um that you know war crimes would be uncovered and investigated and you know if russia bombed a hospital and they would i mean we, i did a, i had a special look at um the hospitals for a long time were giving the coordinates of their medical centers to the UN, which would then pass them to Russia right. um, yeah. with the hope. I mean, the, these medical organizations were so desperate at that point. Yeah. I mean, they were being bombed anyway. Every single one of them was being bombed weekly. So they thought, why not at least have some accountability? Yeah. Um, so they were passing them to the UN who was passing them to Russia. And the hospitals were still bombed. And I remember when we realized this is what the medical centers are doing, I spoke to them. And um, I spoke to uh, the UN after one of them had been bombed, and I said, "Well, you know what happens now? What's the mechanism? This has this is the thing that we were yeah. worried was going to happen has happened now. What is the mechanism?" Right. And all he could tell me was, "We're, we're going to investigate." 
and you know two years later i chased that up and they're still investigating so yeah that word has unfortunately been sort of uh i mean it's it's almost cliche now when you hear it that you almost know from the beginning that once you hear that there's no investigation but is that i mean i i don't want to get too sort of personal here but did are you able to sort of if you know that and you know that your role is maybe curtailed, does it make the job all the more difficult that you know that there's only so much that can be done, yet you're still, that's your job and that's your career, and you care. I mean, you actually do care. So does it impact you? Does it take its toll, I guess, on an emotional level? Yeah, it does. And I think um, I think it was Salome Anderson who said this recently, um, that if you don't, if you covered Syria and you didn't care, you didn't really take it to heart and mm, mm. take and internalize it, then you were doing something wrong, basically. Mm, mm. So it's yeah. very hard, hard to cover something like Syria. And, you know, the you these accusations always get leveled at you, that you're not objective and that you've taken a side and that, you know, you, you're pro-rebel or you're pro-this. Um, and I always kind of try, try to say I'm not pro-rebel, I'm pro-civilian. And wherever the civilians are being killed, that is where I will write about. And obviously, and in the Syrian war, it, it so happened that almost 90% of them were carried out by the government against um, the people. I mean, I didn't, you know, support one side over the other. It was just about making sure that the civilians weren't being killed, at the very least. Yeah. Um, or at least we were writing about them so that there was some awareness that this was going on. Um, and, yeah, I just... I, I, yeah. I mean, I think if you cover the war for three, four, five years, um, you do. A part of you does not that you completely lose your objectivity, but it's very difficult in a war like Syria to not. I don't know what the right time is. It's not taking sides. It's just feeling like you need to do right by the people that have been wronged. Um, I think that's the sentiment I keep hearing from anyone that spent time covering that war, that that's the sentiment that they take with them. But it's almost like a, it's a scar as opposed to a sort of uh, a credential. It's a very damaged uh, end to that conflict. Um, I want to sort of explore something else with you, which is something that relates to this subject. And it goes back, it goes back, at least in the Syrian example, it goes back to 2011. On the Lebanese side, I think it's a repeated attempt, but it it began to a large degree in 2015, and then we saw the zenith last year, late last year. The issue of accountability. Uh, you've seen attempts at changing all systems in the region. I mean, the Arab Spring is a decade old, and we've known we've known many protest movements that have sprung up without geopolitical slogans, even without international affairs being of any concern. It's just accountability and decency and dignity, and I'm asking you just sort of as somebody who's covered the region, somebody who's lived in the region, somebody who's old enough now, and I'll say that carefully, old enough, (laughs) to maybe have some perspective. Knowing that people, there's a good chance people will continue demanding, there's a good chance people will continue protesting, and the story is not over in Syria, there may come a point where this momentum picks up again. It's, It's just impossible to predict that. But do you sense there's no turning back on the eventual, on the eventual uh, need for accountability when it comes to all the regimes in that part of the world? 
I'm not just talking about Lebanon or Syria. I'm talking about Iraq. I'm talking about Iran. That there's no turning back. That this is sort of a, uh, if you will, a fait accompli. That there, there will come a point where these regimes will have to heed, take heed to protest their demands. Yeah, I think I think particularly in Syria that. Um, I think there needs to be a kind of national healing process where there has to be an admission of what happened before anyone can move on and start to even think about healing or reparation. Um, and I remember, I remember during my trip to Damascus and Aleppo, we interviewed um, the defense secretary and we said to him, I mean, at that time they were clearly bombing hospitals and schools and we said to him, we asked him about this and he said, oh no, we haven't, no single civilian has been killed by airstrikes by government airstrikes um and i just and i just sort of thought to myself then if they can't even admit if they can't even begin to admit that they might have killed one person by mistake you know even if it wasn't the case then this is going to be a very 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 long road for people um and i think i think russia did even push the government to start issuing these death um, certificates, because I'm sure you know for a long time that the people that were killed in Sednaya in the prisons, I mean, they had no closure whatsoever. The yes. families were given absolutely no yeah. no sense of closure, whether their, their son was alive or um, being tortured. And I think, I think Russia, even Russia knew that the government had to start acknowledging mm. these deaths as the first first small step towards a kind of not a rehabilitation or a reconciliation, but, you know, people can't move on or forgive if there isn't even an acknowledgement. So I think the death certificates for some people were, you know, a sense of closure and potentially a way they can possibly be, move on. But, I mean, I think if you think about a wound or an injury, it feels like Assad and Syrian government is perhaps the open wound and you know we keep wiping away the pus but the wound is still open and not healing um and, and i don't know if it's going to be you know a year five years ten years but i can't see a way that as a society that people can forget what happened and just move on if there is no if there's no acknowledgement and no kind of so there's a necessity at, at the top the one the the if you will the the establishment the elites of those countries that have controlled that part of the world for too long that they will need to reflect themselves on what they've done yeah i mean i think i think if a if a population if people are going to even think about moving back there has to be some sort of accountability and i think it's quite clear now that that's not going to happen on any international setting or in any you know icc or the hague i mean obviously assad and and his cronies are never going to never going to face that sort of justice um but i think even even smaller than that that there needs to be some sort of acknowledgement of what's happened of just an, an admission of the, that these people have been killed and where and how um can i ask you though, does that, anyone, but is that i mean i'll give you just one example i saw it on the news today that there's a small town in germany the name escapes me now that there is a mm. trial taking place uh, if I'm not mistaken, defectors of the regime, and there are witnesses, and it's sort of COVID-type trial where some of the witnesses are appearing, others aren't. But uh, is, is that the kind of acknowledgement that you're talking about, where justice needs to be served, and that kind of sort of open trial, sort of being able to... I mean, am I getting that right, that that's the acknowledgement you're referring to? Or, or is it 
this is something else that the regime has to admit in one the, way or the other. It, needs, it needs to come from them. I mean, I think mm. I think it's quite clear that I mean, some Western European governments are, are starting to to put people on trial, like Sweden and Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, they're able they're able to do that. Uh, but I think no, I mean, I, I think I mean more in the sense of that the the government. I mean, how can you move on if you if you kill however many hundreds of thousands of your countrymen and there can't even be, you know, at least some governments can acknowledge what's happening and, you know, the, the lengths they're going to. But just, I mean, so many people have been disappeared and so many people have been killed. And the, the fact that, you know, in that moment you can ask the defence secretary, if, you know, if any civilians have been killed and he looks at you and he says, I can promise you, you know, we haven't killed any civilians. When it's, when it's quite clear to everyone, including them, the footage is there, the, the films are there. And I think it, it, it does people a disservice to continue lying about this. Um, so where does that, and, pr- yeah. sorry, but where does that pressure come from? And, and I know I'm asked, this is a loaded question, but how do you see that happening? Where, where, where would that kind of person and that regime feel the need to be somewhat honest? I think the only, the only thing that seems to um, put pr- any sort of pressure on the government is its relationship with Iran and, um, mm, Russia, mm, and I think, and I think from, from from what I heard, that the only reason that the government started issuing these death certificates is because Russia, you know, Ru- Russia is part of the peace process mm, and mm-hmm. talks to the talks to the opposition and talks to the government. And every single the reason that the peace talks failed is because the opposition's main demand was always to know what not not even to have the prisoners released, but to just know what happened to them. That was their number one request yeah. at every single peace. It's not, you know, ceasefire was number two, um, political process was number three. Yeah. Number one was always where are our family members? And and Russia, who was who was um, the interlocutor between between the two sides, who never who never directly spoke during the peace talks, put pressure on the Syrian government and said, look, if you're if if you're going to get anywhere with these talks, or if you're going to get anyone on the side ever then you're going to need to start at least, at the very, very least, is issuing certificates. So even, um, even on the domestic side, because that, I mean, in a way that reflects, that's kind of the meeting point of two issues, which is there's a population that wants better, that, that wants a decent regime. And then there's the geopolitical side of the story, which is the pressure will not necessarily come from within. The pressure will come from an external party that is supporting that regime. So even in its, it's kind of... Uh, I don't know if catch-22 is the right phrase here, but it's that kind of situation where no matter what the protesters do, even if their demands are legitimate and genuine and all of, all of the above, the answers are in Moscow or in Tehran. Yeah, I think all Syrians know that the that Syria is not its own sovereign country anymore. Mm. I'll just wrap it up with the role of a storyteller in that situation. I know we kind of already talked a bit about it, but just in terms of today. Um, I, I think Karim Shaheen is, so far he's been the most, uh, he emphasized the point that he got into journalism to focus in on the human story. And I kind of, I, we went back and forth on this issue that statistics are just statistics. They don't resonate. Um, Casualty figures, you become immune to at some point, especially when it's years and years of reporting that high figures don't even make it make an they make an impact only in that little sort of figure, but they don't translate to anything else. 
And then one sad tragedy of a child drowning on the coast sort of makes people focus in again. Um, and there's many examples like that where the human story resonates and sometimes may encourage some change, maybe. Would you agree to that sentiment? That storytelling, at least when it comes to war correspondency, that the human aspect and focusing in on a human story resonates more than just traditional reporting. And even if it's barbaric, even if it's even if it takes a huge human toll, that one human tragedy exposed as a proper story resonates more. Yeah, and I, th- I, th- I completely agree that it's so easy to ignore something um, unless you see someone on a TV crying. Or um, I think that's always what I've noticed about Syrians is that they that they were never they never even in like 2017 18 19 when it was quite clear that nothing they ever said or did was going to change anything internationally mm. that they still never they still never stopped kind of having the bravery of telling their story yeah. um that even even though they knew that they, i mean they knew that nothing that they said or said to you as a journalist would change anything they still took their time to speak to you and to just make sure that at least it was on record that at least we can say that we didn't we, we didn't we, at least we couldn't deny that we knew. Right. Um, and I think I think that's what it became about for them, is not just, is not thinking, oh, if I tell my story about my two children being killed in a chemical attack, that maybe tomorrow, you know, the US will bomb Assad. It was more, I think even at that point, they realized it was just kind of a record. It was a, rec- it was a kind of dr- a, r- a rough draft of history. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm kind of eternally grateful that these people still, you know, thought it was at least worthwhile enough to talk to a journalist about it. Well, Josie, I, I'll say a few things here. It's good to reconnect with you whenever possible, even if it's by accident. I hope we can properly reconnect at some point in the near future. I hope we can sort of see each other in person. And uh, I know we will at some point. That's the good news. I just hope it's not a decade from We're now. We're in the same city still, so that's good. We're in the same city you know, fortunately, if, in case you don't want to, you have a good excuse. New York is that city you can say, ah, it's too difficult to meet up. I'll see you in Beirut. <laughs> Do you know, Manhattan might as well be Mars right now. Like, it just feels crazy, the, the, the like journey you'd have to make there at the moment. Yeah. Well, I won't take it personally if we don't see each other in New York. I hope we see each other somewhere. Everywhere. And, Everywhere. and uh, as long as it's not uh, here, I don't think that will happen anytime soon. But... Uh, I, I really I, I appreciate your time and I appreciate you sharing some personal stories here that uh, I think uh, they're important to share. And I'm going to include a lot of things. Your The articles we reference will be in the details box and uh, a bit of sort of like a bio about you and your story. And uh, I really appreciate your time, Josie. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks for listening. And a friendly reminder to help support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box below. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan. <laughs>